Hello, everyone, and welcome to Context. This program is brought to you by the Idaho Humanities Council with funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here today do not necessarily represent those of the IHC or the NEH. My name is Joanna Bringhurst, and joining us today is C. Marie Furman. C. Marie is the current Idaho Writer in Residence. She is Associate Director and Poetry Director at Western Colorado University, where she teaches nature writing. C. Marie is the author of Camped Beneath the Dam, Poems, and co-editor of one of my new favorite books, Cascadia Field Guide, Art, Ecology, and Poetry, and also Native Voices, Indigenous Poetry, Craft, and Conversations. She has published poetry and nonfiction in multiple journals, including Terrain.org, Emergence Magazine, Platform Review, Northwest Review, Yellow Medicine Review, and Poetry Northwest, as well as several anthologies. Seamarie is a columnist for The Inlander and the director of the Elk River Writers Workshop. She's also the host of a podcast from Colorado Public Radio, Terra Firma. Seamarie recently presented at our Idaho Humanities Council Summer Teacher Institute focused on the environmental humanities, and we're so honored to have her joining us on Context to share more about the stories and storytellers of Idaho. Seamri, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm always happy to uh, reach out to Idahoans, particularly teachers in Idaho, um, and help provide resources and stories and insights and perspectives um, to bring into their classrooms and to, to help them build curriculum around. So thank you so much for having me. Great. Okay, I'll turn the time over to you for your presentation. All right, thank you. Go. I'm going to share a story with you today um, about hope and about some wonderful, hopeful things that are happening within Idaho and, and something for not only Idahoans, but our young Idahoans to look forward to and to know that that even in these times when it seems hope is hard to find that um, the earth and the people that care for the earth are still planting and still building hope for sometimes generations that none of us will see. This is called a story about a South Fork Salmon River logging road and what it means to be a good ancestor. This is the story of a river, a road, and a fish. The river is the South Fork of the Salmon. More specifically, it is the stretch of the South Fork of the Salmon River that begins in a meadow named Stoli until it joins the Seasash River beneath my favorite bridge, a bridge that curves in a way to suggest it is hugging the river, that curves like a comma, asking drivers to pause as they cross, to pause, and look into the water below. Look in as if there are answers there. Look in because the answers are there. But this bridge is not on the road that the story is interested in, but the road and the bridge and the fish who swim in the river are all on the way to the trail where the story begins. The trail, like the river, like the fish, predates white settlement yet it was worn by human feet. It is kept up by hooves and paws, and on a day in late May of 2022, it knows the tread of my own souls, 
following the tread of my partner, the paws of our two dogs, and the notion of wonder. On this day, the hill we climb is golden with airily balsam root. I have known many flowers, but balsam root, to my knowing, is the most companionable. Yeah, iris of gold, pupil of earth, I am never alone when I walk among them. Each greeting me from beside the trail, each eye watching my step, giving me glimpses into the soil that is the soul of all things. Looking into those brown eyes, I see ancestors, human and greater than every being whose bone and ash fed balsam roots bloom, fed others that grow here too, fed the deer whose body fed my own. Once before I stopped picking flowers, I tucked a stem behind my ear and for a moment gained another sight. In that moment, seeing through soil colored and gilded eye, I saw what I think I can call immutability. For a moment, I knew what was meant by the words, look to the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, nor do they spin. And for a moment, I toiled not, nor spun as well. But this morning, the one of our story, the one after I stopped picking flowers, instead letting them grow and flourish to be breakfast for deer or vole, or just remain in poetry as a place where sunrises are born, this morning, I kindly greeted them as I walked up the steep trail, the very old trail, with my dogs, my man, and the song of robins above and river rush below, and somewhere in the distance, the din of a diesel engine. To know the landscape of the South Fork of the Salmon River, hold your hands at heart level, palms down, spread the fingers of one hand, and then the other, and weave them together, stopping at your first knuckle. Here's where the river winds through, still cutting the canyon that holds it, and there between your fingers are the drainages. We can name a few now, but know that names are immutable. And these streams had many, and may have more to come, but today we'll call them Buckhorn, and Camp, and Phoebe, and Nasty. And if you can imagine, the landscape of your hands as big as mountains, like the Salmon River Mountains that hold the South Fork of the Salmon River, you will see how steep your fingers have become. What an effort it may be to get to the back of your hand, but what a gift the summit will be when you get there. The view notwithstanding, the back of your hand becomes a place to hope for. This is where we are headed the back of your hand that is the summit and the ridge, though for the sake of our stories and stories yet to come, let's not name the drainage we walk, nor the creek that flows through it. Forgive my lie of omission, but trails like the one we are taking are best left unnamed, just as some wishes are left best left unspoken if you want them to come true. The morning air is cool, it will rain. This, my partner, a fish biologist calls salmon weather. And yes, there are salmon in the South Fork of the Salmon River, or soon there will be. And they are part of the story of river and road. But for the sake of our story, let's say they are more than salmon. Let's say they are a symbol for all life in the river, from steelhead to sculpin, mussel to lamprey. 
and weather matters greatly to this story, particularly that it is salmon weather, because salmon weather means rain, and rain means that from the top and sides of the hills that we see in your hands, water will flow down, down, down into the streams and the sea sash, and down into the south fork of the Salmon River. It flows down into the main Salmon River itself and is passing now, not far from here, in a river called the Snake, which joins the Clearwater, which joins the Columbia, and drains into the Pacific. And somewhere in that salinate water, Spring Chinook are turning bodies east, turning back to fresh water and carrying with those bodies food for balsam root and black bear and ponderosa, carrying life in its myriad forms, carrying life back to the South Fork of the Salmon River. Salmon are carrying this life and their story as they make their way upstream, a travail not at all like the short and relatively simple walk of the drainage of our hands, but one that must overcome dams, resist current, jump falls, finally to come to the headwaters where our story and the river began. Spring rain, spring snow, runoff, water. The banks of creeks fill, even only if slightly, they rise the sea sesh and the south fork of the salmon and the main salmon, so on down the line. And in times before the dams, before man was gatekeeper to passage, the rising water made it easier for salmon to move, maneuver around boulders, over falls, and swim their way up thin streams and wrist-like tributaries to that place where even now lie eggs that will soon hatch and bodies that will grow and grow. And eventually this same salmon weather will be the spring water these young salmon ride down, passing us, passing their ancestors, passing their story on to a new generation. There is something else about the rain. When it falls, as soon it will, on the ridge and drainage, holding the trail which we walked on that early morning, it will loosen soil. And that soil and rain will let go some bits of earth which will roll down the hillside past Arrowleaf and Ponderosa to an old dirt road. And this is where our story may have stopped. Because in this landscape and this story, the road begins to complicate things. Like dams, it begins to disrupt natural movement. It disrupts relationship between slope and river and rain and fish. It is as if mid-step, me and the dogs and the fish biologist named Caleb freeze. As the photograph stills a moment, the road stills the rain. And yet it is also like pausing life because those hillsides like salmon turning east in the Pacific like me giving you this story, are meant to give something to the river. This is what it means to be a good ancestor, to keep the gift, gift moving. And the hill gives pebbles and stuff and also boulders and entire trees. And though this seems catastrophic, sometimes a little catastrophe is necessary. Sometimes it takes an avalanche to feed a river the logs and boulders it needs to create homes and habitat hiding for bull trout 
beds from mussels, play beaches and push debris downstream. This is their agreement. But the agreement was broken, or at least altered, by the road. The rain has stopped. And with it came a new partner in the relationship, for the road was cut by a big yellow machine, not souls this time, not merely a path, but six feet of level earth. And instead of tread of soul, I'm tread of tire. The road is part of a web of roads cut into the fingers of hillside, zigzagging back and forth, swaying as if dancing. And taking each tree it comes to as a partner, shaking the dress of limbs and boughs until the final dip from miller or saw, from which the coniferous dancer never recovered. It was the dance of industry, the 1960s, the pride of lumberjacks who I know, for I've met some, loved the fork of the Salmon River, loved hills and arrow leaf and pine as much as I do, as much as Nimipu and Zubadika, whose cambium peels are scars too. Love, we can agree, is as hard to define as Idaho. And perhaps both are best that way, perhaps, but then things changed. Perhaps our love, or more specifically, the way we showed it. Perhaps we found we can love or at least need a thing too much. And so hundreds and hundreds of miles of roads were cut into hillsides. Millions of trees were cut into board feet and the slopes of the South Fork were as bare as the back of our hands, except for the roads. And when the big machines finally rolled away, when most of the old trees were gone and the lumberjacks moved on, only stumps that thrust from the earth like fists or tombstones, or merely stumps exposing their years in a circle of circles, containing old songs, containing ancient storms, circles like whorls in the print of your finger remain. Though I was born after the roads, I have seen the South Fork of the Salmon without them. In black and white, in photographs buried in archives and uncovered almost if by accident, but perhaps providence. For here is a haunting coincidence. The photographer who made the black and white photo, whose subject I know, made the picture while on the same trail where I walked that May morning. Not just the same trail, but the same exact place. And the providence I talked about the accident of finding was a result of a search for a photo of a homesteader cabin I'd read about that no matter its fortitude when it was built is gone. No foundation or chimney or root cellar remain. I don't recall what I was hoping to find in my search except that sense of awe that comes with something so seemingly solid as home being suddenly so absolutely erased as if it never existed, which does not surprise me, given our history and the way entire lives and cultures can be erased, erased from it. So maybe it is not wonder that this missing archives ensures, but something like hope, which is something that Ari e. Benedict in 1904 might have felt when he stood where many others, many unlike him, stood before and where I would stand 100, 
and seven years later. There was no road into the South Fork then, no gentle curve of bridge, no signs at stream crossing, no lookouts on peaks. There were no dams on the salmon. Idaho had been a state for only 15 years, and the U.S. Forest Service was but a twinkle in Roosevelt's eye. Ah, but Teddy and Gifford had the wheels turning, and the photograph was taken by a man sent to scout for potential forest reserves. The label on the photo reads, bull pine, yellow pine, is not place, but trees, food for a growing region. The photographer and his horses are mules, or horses and mule, his gear, weighty and cumbersome, took this same trail up and up and set up his equipment first east, then west. I wonder what the trees heard in that moment when the shutter first clicked. Did the horses and mules flinch? Did deer, did elk or flicker tents with prescience, did salmon? Was there a notion in that shutter of what was to come? And not that a landscape as dynamic as the South Forks does not change, but in that moment, did mutability make us new sound? Did it usher in a change unlike any ever seen in these mountains before? And so, with a click of a shutter, a new story began for the South Fork of the Salmon. And in time, a new sound would fill the hills, first buck saws, then backhoes and excavators, fellers and semis. What once was just roar of river would be covered by sound of progress. Before I knew of the man and his camera, before the archives and the rain, I knew too was coming, the rain that brought us to this pause in the road. I had made pictures of my own, first east, then west. It was an outcropping of rock, a prominence, a place of view, and I stood atop it and paused because sometimes, because anymore, I am stilled by beauty. I am brought into a state of awe, sometimes to the point of tears, tears that confuse me as much as they comfort me, for they seem not to know the difference between the beauty of joy and the beauty of pain. Or maybe it's that we fear losing beauty, for however we might define it, beauty feeds hope. And perhaps hopelessness may be defined as the absence of beauty. And maybe my tears are both afraid of what we found and what we might lose. And so sometimes I hoard my emotion into a photograph. I collect the tears into a picture that I then pour out to friends, to myself, over and over again, when solace seems so hard to find. And when I need to remind myself that there are places where, despite roads and men, despite conflicts and catastrophe, despite the longing of a river for her fish, the streams for their first names, despite what would come after the flip of that first shutter, likely the very first shutter to close on these slopes, on the steep fingers that feed water, and sediment and boulders and seed into the South Fork of the river. There is a place that I can turn to, even only if in memory, where I stand on the edge of hope. And perhaps it is the immutability of the photograph that Stacy's, that beauty gathered, is evidence. 
is necessary to prove there is something to be hopeful about. Is this what is meant by faith? Look to the arrow leaf who do not spin nor toil. There is something else about the photographs, about looking into places where we can imagine something Wallace Stegner wrote about in his wilderness letter when he wrote, something will gone out of us as a people if we ever let the remaining wilderness be destroyed. We simply need that wild country available to us, even if we never do more than drive to its edge and look in. He called it part of the geography of hope and perhaps Benedict did too, and perhaps the loggers and miners and the homesteaders that came and removed Tukadika, Nimipu, salmon, wolves, grizzly, ponderosa, and how many others who had a different name or no name, a different story or no story at all for this place. Maybe they saw something that looked like hope the human-centric kind, the short view, the narrow view, like the photograph that can only hold so much, that can show only a bit of what matters to an entire landscape, to a future. For I believe that wilderness to native people, native fishes, and even some poets is not so easily labeled, is not so easily boundaried, is not wilderness at all, is simply an extension of life like home, maybe like the hands you use to make the landscape or the South Fork, something to be attached to, not separate from, no nature, not nature, only nature, only wilderness. And knowing this home existed and allowing it to exist meant human existence, meant life, meant that we too are part of the landscape, our wilderness, and what we have inflicted, what we were about to inflict, would cause us to lose more than trees and fish, would cause us to lose what we didn't know then was hope. I believe most of those that would come in the half century after Benedict, loggers, CCC workers, miners and homesteaders did so with good intent. I believe they took pride in their work, were glad to have work and believed their labors were part of a greater good. And those with children believed they would be remembered as good ancestors, making a better future for their children and those children to follow. I like to think that whomever drove the dozer that made the road that I am telling you about, told a story of progress and industry and frontierism to children who would look with pride at their fathers and mothers, trusting that yes, it was destiny, yes, it would regrow, yes, this land of plenty would always be, and yes, we were fair and did the best thing for those who had first called this canyon home. I have to believe that story in order to believe this one, the one I'm trying to tell you, the one that says we are capable of a great many things, the best of which maybe new stories. Come back with me now to the pause of the rain and earth on the road. Here, the earth and seeds that were tumbling with water stop. But rain, rain water, rain drops is a gift that is always in motion. So when the drop reaches the flat, it cannot sheds as water sheds are meant to do, but gathers and pools on compacted earth, gathers and pools until it finds a slope enough 
to make a rivulet, carve runnels, and fall finally down. But in this new path, missing the roots it once fed, maybe feeding a different stream, maybe the fourth of, force of its gathering, destabilizing, and carrying more earth, more rocks and trees, more and more and down and down into the river where reds of ancestors have been made for centuries. And those reds are flushed. Maybe the eggs are lost and salmon return to empty beds if they return at all. And, a year, and in the years after the logging, after the easiest trees were felled, the trees that shaded the river, kept cool the water for fishes, gave shade and eventually homes, the land began to slide whole hillsides into water. And I say hillside because though you and I talk about a small stretch of road, a single curve really, like the salmon that represent all fish in the river, this piece of road is representative of the over 800 miles of roads cut into the fingers and ridges, cut into the landscape that is an extension of home, cut in miles longer than those travailed by salmon that returned from the Pacific to Stoli Meadows, which is very long indeed. And if you can imagine that distance and the roads switched back and how the land then sloughed and slid, you know that more land went into the river than the river and all its wonder could manage. I understand this in poetry, which can bend to hyperbole, but this is not exaggeration for I have seen it. And if I could tell you the way my partner has graciously told me, my partner, the fish biologist, Caleb, who has spent most of his career studying habitat, homes of salmon, I would give you the science of sediment. I would offer the facts and data graphed with lines red and blue that would show the distribution and declining numbers. I would show you too, that though the lines stagger greatly toward declines and steeply as the South Fork Salmon River slopes to loss, there is something else happening. Some direct result of our being here in cooperation, in the idea of healing in those lines a shift, however subtle, a river recovery, a rising line of hope. And for some that might be enough and for some that may be the only story they need. But on a day in May on a tra trail where the souls of ancestors and treads of a man mostly forgotten to history, the paw prints and hoof prints and tread of Caleb than me, I found something data can't measure that no scientific experiment can track. Something that my photo would gather and someday perhaps be placed next to another as if by accident, maybe with a bit of providence, something that is almost forgettable should be forgettable. A restoration, a restoration, a new way of being good ancestors. Before the photograph and the ancestral trail, I had not known the South Fork of the Salmon River without logging roads. I can recall first glimpses my finger pointing to Z's on and Caleb's answer, it doesn't go anywhere. It was cut for logging. It goes to where trees were and stopped. 
and I could not understand, not fully, that a road would be built to nowhere. And in those early years, when I still hunted the canyon for deer, the roads were the easy way in, dense and steep as the country is. The roads, or what was left of them, was easy walking, quiet walking. Of the hundreds of miles I have walked in the South Fork, many of them have been on old roads whose convenience and use have made them trails. When I was first in love with the South Fork, I loved her roads and all. I let roads be my convenience without second thought because I was taught love is an acceptance of what is. And I believed that if this could remain immutable, this landscape as I first met it, if no more change would come, no more holes in her sides, no dams on her rivers, if the designations we'd placed by the institution we placed faith in could protect the South Fork of the Salmon River, the streams and creeks, nasty buckhorn camp and Phoebe, the trail from being found out as a trail so ancient aches with history. If we could protect this, keep it from changing, keep the tractors and plows and mining companies away, then maybe that would be love. Maybe that would show a little hope to predecessors. Maybe they would look to us with some pride and say they did try. What I am trying to say is that I fell in love with the South Fork despite its scarred hillsides because I am embarrassed to tell you, though I imagine things could get worse, I never imagined they might get better. This was my story of the South Fork and the roads. And I thought that despite what Caleb's research was finding, for research has been done and ignored before, that this was as good as it gets. And so this I accepted. And I put my faith in places downriver in time that dam would be removed. Perhaps the roads that were closed would stay closed and never tempt another timber sale and that the Cianothus and Ponderosa might carve Wisdom, Stegner writes, is knowing what you have to accept. What I didn't know, what I couldn't see, was this was not the story of the South Fork we had to accept. What I didn't know was the reason Caleb had brought me to this old trail. What I hadn't yet seen was a new story being on the land. The story of the South Fork of the Salmon Rivers you've seen could be the modern story of many places in the West. The story after the stories whose language was ignored. Settlers moved in, natives were forced out. Those who instilled fear from grizzlies to sheep eater Indians were killed. Manifest destiny was invoked and trees and rivers and deer and land were now named resource or commodified. And a certain amount of greed settled in what once seemed bountiful, innumerable, by the aforementioned sons and daughters of the loggers and miners was taken by saw, by shovel, or by gun, was taken by dredge or drill, by single homesteaders and huge corporation, by government entities created to preserve, and then was either colonized or abandoned. In the areas that Benedict's photos made preserve, plans were written 
and promiscuity of caring for the land and serving people, the witch people it served, and how to define caring was mutable and only sometimes realized. In the areas that were abandoned because they offered no resource, a pall settled in. Lakes that offered no fish were labeled barren. Rivers reduced to reservoirs were stocked to attract visitors and became thick with algae and stale of story. And this says nothing of the people, those who call this homeland, those whose ancestors wore the trail in, people as resilient as the landscape and who, like salmon, are trying, despite all the obstacles, to return home to natal waters through culture and language, both of which are dependent and not apart from the landscape they are attached to, attached as we to the back of our hands. And when looked at this way, when considering the entire West, a new story seems almost impossible. It seems sometimes that the only change can be for the worst. It seems that we are depending on someone downstream or down the years to fix what is wrong here today. When looked at this way, hope is an impossibility that exists in the future and the fear of not knowing what the first ancestors knew, what Benedict felt when he set up that tripod in 1904, what Stegner meant with his words in 1964, and what I saw on that May morning, looking first east, then west, then back east again, is the fear I have as your ancestor, is the fear that drove me to write the story, is the fear that if we do not bring action to create hope, the only story we will have is the one already written in roads on the landscape. I forgot to mention Clarkia on that May walk. Do you know Clarkia? Such a deep purple and more than I had ever seen. I forgot too the Ponderosa I wanted to mention. It stood alone on the hillside, 200 feet tall, a sentinel minder known uh, for I have not known many larger for most the old trees. Well, We've learned what happened. And even this one was arrow straight and primed for the mill. Sometime, somehow it was spared and housed beetles and held robins in our backs as we leaned against it, eating our lunches, looking west. In its rings are the stories of thunderstorms and winters, the song of Nimipu and cry of Osprey, the sound of wolves howling, the shudder, Benedict's camera and the sound of the saw, and now my sound too. In the heartwood is the DNA of the Pacific, delivered in spent salmon, shat by turkey vultures and eagles. In its bark is a nest of woodpeckers, and its view is a landscape that over the last century and a half has been forced to change. And because imagination is part of my trade, I imagine the 1960s and a sire who saw this Ponderosa, its location, its presence like a lighthouse, a beacon, and said, no, not this one. And the tree heard that too. And maybe that felt something like hope. The rain, when it came, 
fell with a fervor. The clouds threw the rain down, and despite our attempt to take shelter beneath denser pine, the rain found us too. And in time, all I had protected with coat and hat was cold and wet. When rain dripped from the whiskers of the dogs, from the brims of our hats and the sides of our packs, rain like tears on our cheeks, rain chilled down our spines, rain filling each crack and crevice it could reach, rain finding roots and delivering life, rain as salmon weather. The old dog stood in the rain like a challenge. The closed his way beneath our bent legs as if in his canine lineage, rain and dog were never to meet. And me, I thought of the water gathering, gathering on the slope, water shedding off leaves and limbs and rock and water watering the old pondo, water at the top of the ridge carrying seed and some sediment going down and down to that place where the first rain in our story stopped. This rain fell and did not stop. And when the storm passed, our, as storms are wont to do quickly in this part of the Salmon River Mountains, and before the robins return, before the din of river rose up the hillside, I heard a sound that inspired the opposite of hope. I heard the roar of the excavator's diesel engine as it caught and fired to life again. It was the only sound other than the river and birdsong and thunder and suffering of trees we had heard all morning. It had been our constant companion on the trail uphill. And then I saw it and gasped and pointed at its orange body, its jaws and shovel. And this time, Caleb just smiled and said, come, let me show you, said a word I've come to anticipate, obliteration. When we reached the place where the old trail, the Indian trail once met the road, I am overwhelmed by the smell of raw earth. I look west and see what is called obliteration, trees uprooted and earth upside down, soil tilled and mounted, rocks strewn without pattern, scrapes and pulls and what could be called catastrophe, if I didn't know what Caleb then tells me. Soon, a woman toting a canvas bag filled with native seed mix, seeds of yarrow and bunch grass will come walking past. She will scatter the seed while others transplant nine bark and cyanosis into newly uncompacted soil. That was only hours or days earlier road. She will walk toward the river where I can see the giant orange excavator working its way down and down the ridgeline, down the old road. It tears up as it moves, pulling together road cut to road fill, pulling hillside to hillside together like seams of a wound. On occasion, the excavator will grab a root ball and all the juvenile pine and place it into a hole it's left in the wreck, then a rock, then another swipe above to pull below, leaving slope where shelf once had been. And for a moment, it is like I am watching time unwind, history in reverse at six feet an hour. And the irony of Indian the road 
the native seed planted in the uncompacted soil, the tribe and the government, Benedict's photo and now mine, Stegler's story of hope meeting mine, the irony of healing a wound, or maybe what looks like metaphor for the beginning of a healing between ancestors, new and old, that is not lost on me. And when the excavator reaches the river, it will be driven to the top of another, another nowhere going road. And it will begin again and again until another 300 miles of roads are obliterated. And then the land will be left to heal. The sound of the heavy equipment that has brought destruction and grace will reside in the rings of the Ponderosa, the rain that has fallen, the rain that gave us pause and chill, the rain that fell as if it had a job to do, will soak into the soil that is the soul of all the things in the South Fork of the Salmon River, will make its way to seed, to root, and it will feel something like I felt the first time I saw the South Fork, something like I felt when I saw the upturned earth, something I hadn't imagined possible, something like love, but more like hope. And what gives me the most hope in the story has less to do with this unroading, with what this unroading will do for fish and the river, though that is important too. This hope I felt welling like pain beauty tears was the hope for humans. Because in the plan that created this change, the forest plan, the plan of land managers was a plan future thinking a story written by those who will be seen as good ancestors, even as they will not live to see the entire result of their work. For though it will take a half century or more for the wound to heal, it will. And there's a chance that another woman, a century after my passing, as in love with, as in love as I am with the South Fork of the Salmon River will, of a May morning, walk up, with what she believes, walk up what she believes is a game trail. She will follow the tracks of wolves and bear, the heart-shaped footprints of deer and musk of elk. She will look into the eyes of the arrow leaf, not knowing all the ancestors looking back at her. She will, I hope, feel the ghosts of others that ask her to stop and look, first west, then east. She will stop near the base of a ponderosa, it may by then be only a snag, a ghost itself, still stalwart and knowing, and she will lean against it and see a landscape she would never imagine a road upon. She will step to the edge of the ridge and look in and see what some have called resource, some have called preserve, some have called wilderness, and some have no name for it all except home. And maybe she will step to that edge, arms open, eyes wide, and the sound the trees and birds and river will hear will be the sound of her voice saying thank you. Epilogue. To date, 300 miles of road have been obliterated in the South Fork of the Salmon River. 200 more are scheduled for obliteration. Though it is too soon to tell the effect these actions will have on streams, tributary, 
at tributaries and fishes below, we can look to old data from the hundreds of miles of decommissioned roads on the Payette National Forest, the Nez Perce Clearwater National Forest and others, and know that the work is not in vain. It's important to note too that healing the land, at least in the South Fork, was not unlike healing a body. Groups once at odds, both federal and local, tribal and non, came together to heal the landscape, to remove a road, support a river, and save her fishes. We are, as humans, capable of a great many things. The wounds men make in the earth do not quickly heal, writes Stegner. Still, they are only wounds. They are absolutely mortal and better a wounded us than none at all. Lace your fingers together one more time for another look at the South Fork of the Salmon River. Perhaps you can see it a little more clearly now. The drainages between your fingers, the steepness of the ridges, imagine it as it can be in five years, in 50 years, and see the river as it flows beneath and between your fingers, where the round of your knuckles meet, the river that has been carving the canyon of the South Fork of the Salmon River for millions of years. Its stories begin in the rock and soil, buried beneath muscle beds and rainstorms cobbling time. You can see it or start to if you roll your palms upward. Look how they form something like a basin. Look at how they seem to be giving something away. Look at the life that runs in the lines. It's there. There is the answer. The one I told you was in the bottom of the river beneath the bridge that pauses like a comma. There is what it takes to make a new story. There is where the future of the South Fork, the salmon that is all fish, the West and the future for our predecessors live. There is the geography of hope, right there in your hands. Thank you. Oh, wow. Thank you, C. Marie. Thank you for sharing your incredible words with us. Your writing is so beautifully hopeful and your perspective on Idaho's past is powerful. I will definitely take with me thoughts of what kind of ancestor I will be for those who come next. Thank you so much and thanking, thank you also for having me on to read to you today. I really appreciate it. Thank you.